James chapter 4 is our text and verse number 11. We'll read just to the end of the chapter, verse 17, and we should be able to deal with that. So James chapter 4 and verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. But now ye rejoice, and your boastings, all such rejoicing, is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And that's our reading. So when you come to this section of James' epistle, he's speaking about something that is uh, obviously up to date, because everything he's been speaking about is up to date. Well, in our day of communication, as it is, then this perhaps more than ever is something that we need to think about and listen to. So he's speaking about the issue of malicious gossip. He's speaking about the issue of harming each other by our words. And if ever there was a day when that can be done easily, then that is today, obviously, because of the means that we have to communicate with each other. So here is something that's not new. Here is something that's always been an issue. And he's not now going to speak about the methods of communication, but rather that which lies underneath why we're communicating, why we're saying what we say, and rather than the particular things that we might say to each other. So he begins with this very straightforward statement. I remember uh, going from a tea one time to Jim Baker's house and uh, above his dining room table there was a verse on a plaque and it was verse, the verse that we've just read in James chapter 4 and verse 11. Speak not evil one of another brethren, right above the table where the saints all gather to have supper. And mind you, that wouldn't be a bad thing, would it? Because it might moderate the way that we talk to each other in the absence of other people. So this is something that's very direct. It's very pertinent to everyone. And let's just dig into what he's saying here and why he's saying this. Speak not evil one of another. Brethren, he uses the word brethren or brother three times in the context, and we'll come to that in a moment. But what he's actually speaking about is defamation of character. The idea to defame lies behind this expression, speaking evil. So it is actually defamation of character in view. One writer said this, that what James is about to address is not a problem of the mouth. It's not a problem of vocabulary. It's not a problem of communication technique. It's actually a problem of the heart that finds its expression in these other things. It has to do with lying about each other or speaking with malice about each other and with malicious intent. We would hardly need really to get into that and describe what that sounds like because I'm sure there's not a single person in this room that's never done it or perhaps ever being on the receiving end of it. It's something that we at a very early age become quite familiar with. 
talking about other people and being talked about by other people. It's such a part of relationships and human interaction. But basically what he's saying here is, you must not, you should not speak against or speak down against someone. It's the idea of speaking down, of putting someone down, of harming someone, of being malicious towards someone else. Words such as defame or slander or denigrate has the idea of evil speaking. So that's the context of what he's speaking about. This word, by the way, in the Bible is often translated as backbiting, which is actually a very graphic description of what the word entails in its essence, because the word backbiting implies the absence of the person being spoken against. So this sort of thing that James is warning us against that was taking place in his day is that which thrives, which actually flourishes when the person who is being spoken about is not present. That's why it's called backbiting. It's not done to their face, it's done behind their back. Now that's not the only context in which it's done. And by the way, this is the present tense. It's a present continuous tense. He's actually saying... Stop doing this as an ongoing habit of life, as a kind of familiar way of speaking about people. So this is not the occasional uh, comment. This is actually someone who goes out with the intent of speaking about an individual to their detriment and to their harm, and doing it usually behind their back. We use the word gossiping and that would be a word that would entail the same sort of thing. Now, when can we do this? Well, we don't just do it in the person's absence. We can actually speak evil one of another to ourselves. Now, I don't know if you talk to yourself or not. Maybe you do, but not out loud. Or maybe you do out loud. Um, there are other problems you may have. That's what you do. But anyway, if you talk to yourself... And it's not audible, but you're actually having a conversation with yourself. I've done it many a time, usually about a conversation I wish I'd had with someone else. And I rehearse the whole thing myself. And it's absolutely fantastic. And I say it to myself, it's too late. And that sort of thing is something that you might do from time to time. But what you can do is this. You can speak evil in your own mind about an individual. And actually, that's where it usually begins. So that I will silently watch you, I will silently critique you, I will silently denigrate you, picking up on your weaknesses and focusing on your failures and your weaknesses in my own mind. Excuse me. As I think about you, that's what I'm thinking about. And so my heart is actually being adjusted, my attitude to you is being adjusted by that thought process. It's calibrating my thoughts about you, as all language does, so that I will particularly pick up on gaps in your righteousness, maybe even in your theology if you have any, and I'll talk about that to myself, not audibly, not perhaps even using language, but it's that which will form my heart toward you. Now, that usually is the first stage in evil speaking. If your heart is not right toward an individual because of this, then your language about that individual is going to bear that character. If you're not soft-hearted towards an, individ an individual, it will come out with harsh language. Because what we say is an expression of what is in our hearts. The Proverbs speak about that, that the issues of life are actually derived from the heart. 
Now, there is another way that we can speak evil, which is I can speak an uncritical and unloving judgment about you to you and think that that's okay because I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm actually, I'm actually facing you up with this. But I'm still speaking evil. And I am bringing into our relationship criticism, bitterness, records of wrong, all that kind of stuff. And that relationship is being made worse by my conversations with you. Because my language, my words, my all of that is negative, it's harsh, it's destructive. And my default position is to home in when I'm talking to you on failure rather than success. On unrighteousness rather than righteousness. That's the tone of how I speak to you when I'm with you destructive and so it's the sort of person that when they come to speak to you you know the likelihood is that it's not going to be an uplifting conversation it's there's going to be a subtlety about it but there'll be a wee jab in there somewhere that is included in this but the most obvious one as i've indicated is to speak evil of each other when we're not there and sadly that is something that can take place I did actually read, interestingly, what was interesting to me um, as a parent, that parenting, and I didn't read too much into this because I couldn't be bothered, uh, parenting descends sometimes to harsh language. Obviously not in our house, but you know there are times maybe in some houses that parenting can descend to harsh language, condemnation, judgment, and I'm quoting, words spoken that never should be spoken, attitudes expressed that should never be expressed, and so on. So this, this actually applies to all relationships, I think was the point of the writer. That it's not just the relationship of what you might say social equals in terms of age or stage of life, but it can be relationships with parents or with children and so on. And we should be careful that we do not fall into this uh, trap in our language to each other and also about each other. But sadly, sadly, we do speak evil, and I'm including myself in this because I think this is a, a problem that we all fall into if we're not careful. We do speak evil against other people when they're not present. We... We enjoy speaking evil about other people when they're not present. And we talk about other people's weaknesses and their failures and their sin. And there is a, even a del, kind of seductive delight in doing it if you're the first to pass it on. Now, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not saying that to you as if I have never done that or I don't feel the temptation or delight in doing it myself. I think this is a common problem that we all face. So why is this such a struggle for us? And it is a struggle. It's like a default position that we need to work hard not to find ourselves adopting. For some people who have been blessed by the Lord with a disposition that's not like that, they're the minority amongst us. Some people are just not like that. You go into their presence and if you're going to criticise someone you feel really awkward because it sounds, it's not the sort of thing that they say. And so you go into their presence and you don't do it because they're there. But you go into someone else's presence and you slip into this way of talking so easily. So we need to be careful. We need to 
to check ourselves about this and we need to also in my view because this I think is one of the most destructive things about relationships that there is speaking evil about each other it's so destructive why is it such a struggle for so many people well the first thing I thought about is just this we've got plenty of material to work with The reason is that we will never be in relationship with perfect people. So you will never have to dig too hard to find weakness and failure and sin in other people. It will be pretty close to the surface. You won't have to dig down that deep to find it. And that's with all of us. None of us are perfect or even close to being perfect. None of us are going to say the right thing at the right time all the time. None of us. We're all going to put our foot in it and all the rest of it. And we're all going to to say things we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do. We'll all have our regrets and our weaknesses and our failures. Every single one of us. So if you're in close proximity to people with plenty of weaknesses and sin just like you, then there will be no lack of things to talk about or point out or gossip about in any of us. Secondly, This sort of conversation is much easier than the other sort of conversation. Now, if you come from the west of Scotland, it's even easier still, because we love being harsh with each other, uh, and there's a level of harshness in our conversation that that is, I mean, that's not just to do with age. You know, over the two guys that I go to, the two brethren I go to the schools with, I mean, I was getting rebuked because I said they were both in their 80s when I was talking about them recently. One's in his 70s and one's in his 80s, just in case he's listening to this. And um, they have normal conversations. And if you didn't know them, you would think they were mortal enemies. And that's just in everyday life. You know, that's like going for a coffee with them. I mean, it's harsh stuff. But I mean, they're the best of friends and they just express their friendship in the most harsh of conversation. But if you didn't know that, you would think that they were really, really antagonistic. You know, Nathan, you'd think really antagonistic. It's the boys from Overton. But this is easier Because judgment and harshness and criticism is easier than mercy and forgiveness and kindness. It's easier to stand apart from somebody, point a finger to them, than it is to actually walk patiently beside them. It is easier to criticise than to forgive. It's easier to hate than to love. And that's because of the flesh and the sin that's within us. Thirdly, I think also pride is a big problem in this. That which is deep within every heart, every, even every redeemed heart, the problem of pride. That actually we tend to think we're wiser than we are and we're more righteous than we are and we're more disciplined than we are and we're less needy than we are. We often have an, well, we don't have an accurate understanding of our own self. And therefore, we tend to find ourselves in our own thoughts elevated above other people and looking down upon other people. And there is the idea of speaking down on other people. And so a healthy, accurate, informed view of where we are in our character, where we are in our walk with the Lord, where we are in our righteousness and in our failures and our lack of wisdom, where we are in the way we've lived. We, see, we sometimes, those of us who are a bit older, forget the life that we've lived and are harsh when we look at other people and see that they're not living what we think they should do. 
and we speak evil against each other. Now, this is a prohibition. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Don't do it, James is saying. It's such a destructive thing. He says, he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother. Now, the two things go together. They are habitual action verbs that go together. He that is continually speaking evil is continually judging them. Now, we live in a world where they use this word judge. You might use it as well in a completely different way than it's used in the Bible here. You know, we use it nowadays, you know, stop judging me. You, can, you know, don't judge me in this sort of thing. In other words, don't form an opinion about my behaviour or character that's adverse. You've no right to do that. Well, that's not what the Bible says. James is not arguing that it's wrong to bring to someone the word of God and to look at their life and action and character in light of what God says in the Bible. And to shine the mirror, if you like, or hold the mirror of God's word up against someone to to show them actually what they're doing is wrong or what they're doing is unrighteous. That's not what's been spoken about here. James is speaking about what lies behind this. It's the way that you do it. It's the thoughts behind it. So often Matthew 7 verse 1 is misquoted, judge not that you be not judged. That does not mean that you cannot condemn sinful action. It does not mean that you cannot take a position of being against certain behaviours. That's not what's been spoken about here. But our attitude to the people is what's been spoken about. He's really saying, don't slander someone and don't play God because it is God that actually is the lawgiver, not you. We are the ones who are to fulfill the law. We don't make the law. Now, he says, he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother. So he uses, as I mentioned, this word brother and he emphasizes three times in these verses this idea of family relationship. Brethren, brother, brother, they're being reminded by James and it's no coincidence that in this context he's appealing to that relationship that they've been brought into with each other as being children of God. Now remember this, all Christians, sometimes we forget this, all Christians have the same father. We all pray to the same God. We all serve the same Lord. There is no hierarchy in that relationship. That people all over the world, in all sorts of church gatherings, in all sorts of contexts, are loved to the same extent. No child of God is loved less or more depending on the choices they've made in their interpretation of scripture and the way that they live for God. None. So he emphasizes this in this context. Remember that the Christians that you're speaking about or to or forming opinions about in your own mind, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. The family. And because of that, you ought to speak about them as if they were family. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, my family's in this audience. I have a brother at the back. I have a wife at the front. That's where she usually is. And I have children somewhere in the middle. There they are down there. So 
they would know, and you'll be the same in your family, that when you speak to family members, you probably speak to them differently than you would speak to non-family members. And there is, a, there is a difference in relationship. You would probably speak about things to them you wouldn't speak to other people about. And you may also have a way of speaking to them that you wouldn't speak to other people about. Remember this, that the Christians are family. And although you may have your differences with family members, it is unnatural for to you, for someone in a family to deliberately, with intent, denigrate, criticise and want to pull down someone who is their brother or sister. When it happens, it looks terrible. The world knows that. There's something awful about seeing a family at war. You know these headlines, a family at war. Uh, Even people who are not Christians see that as being bad. Not a good thing. So remember this, and I like this. One writer said, the Christian army is the only one that goes out its way to shoot its own wounded. For when we see Christians that are struggling, what do we do? Tend to walk over to them and shoot them. Just put them out of their misery. Just shoot them. And do it by words. Now, when you think about people, and why not, let's just bring it really to an awkward stage. When you think about people, and I need to do this as I'm speaking to you, and it's going round in my mind as I'm talking to you. When you think about the other Christians that you've spoken about this week, and the ones who have been not doing well, and you think about your words about them to other people, is that what you were doing? Is that what I was doing? Were you literally just going over and shooting them? Well, you see, it sounds so terrible when you actually say it like that, but that's the reality of it. So, brother, brethren, brother. 1 John 2 verse 8, He that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and doesn't know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 4 20, If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So if I see my fellow Christian as God's children for whom Christ died, and they're connected in family, that will have an effect upon the way I speak. And, you know, that's that's me and you and everyone here. None of us are, none of us are, are, you know, none of us are, completely innocent I would think of this it's such a challenge and so we control that not at the point of exit but at the point of (coughs) the heart that's how that's controlled it's controlled by my attitude towards people that's formed and then is expressed Now he goes on and he's not finished. That's just his first sentence. He then says this, He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother is doing something very serious. James says he speaks evil of the law. 
Now, since loving each other as brothers is the essence of the law, when we fail to do that, we violate God's law. Remember this, the law is all about loving God and loving your neighbour as yourself. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Then you get the Lord in Matthew 22, verse 37. On this hang all the law and the prophets. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength, and thy neighbour as thyself. Romans 13, verse 8. Love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law James 2 verse 8 if ye fulfill the royal law he says according to the scripture thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself ye do well it's a good thing to do this James says listen when you slander someone else you are, it's not just that it's a breach of friendship it's not even just a breach of trust, which it is, by the way. It's not even that you're just hurting someone's feelings. He doesn't even speak about the significance of this in relation to the person that you're speaking about. This is not you've hurt their feelings or you've damaged this relationship. or, or it, the, the victim is not even part of the text. Actually, it's more serious than how you or I feel, even as those that we are spoken about or those who are doing the speaking. He says it's an issue of law. There's no article here. So there's no that law. It's just law. It violates law as law. And it violates the essence of law, which is love. And the law of love is being grievously attacked by slanderous speech. And what you do is just this... You speak evil of the law, you judge the law rather than the law judge you. So you put yourself above the law. Now people speak about them being above the law. So what you're saying is just this, this law of love doesn't apply to me. So love your neighbour as yourself, the Lord said it, but it doesn't apply to me. Uh, if you hate your brother, then you cannot say that you love God. Oh, but that doesn't apply to me. Because, you know, I was passing the message on or when I was whispering or when I was whatever, however we express these things nowadays. When I was doing that, that was just... You know, James says it wasn't just anything. This is what it is. This is the reality of it. This is not sweeping it under the carpet. This is not just passing it off. This is not just saying it's banter. This is not just saying everyone's doing it. James says, listen, by engaging in this, you're actually putting yourself above the law. And by doing so, he then says, if thou judge the law, then you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. You're putting, your place the place, you're putting yourself in the place of God because he says there's only one lawgiver. Everyone else is subject to the law. God is the lawgiver, and the law that he gives, everyone is subject to it in his universe. And those of us who are Christians 
We voluntarily adhere to it and abide by it. But if you say you're above that law, there's only one person who's above the law, and that's the giver of the law. He says there is but one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. That's God. So if you say I'm not subject to that, I'm above the law, it doesn't apply to me. What you're saying in effect is this. I am God. Because this doesn't apply to me. One writer said this. Do you really think that by the logic of your argument, by the tone of your voice, by the force of your personality, you can actually effect change in an individual even positively that only grace can accomplish. Do you think you're that person? Do I think I'm that person? That I can speak to someone, I can speak about someone in any way I like because what God has said about that type of speech doesn't apply to me and that will affect the outcome that I desire in that relationship. I'm standing above the law. I have a better way than God's way. Well, clearly we don't. Because really what he's saying is this, every time that I am wrongfully critical, condemning, legalistic, judgmental, whatever way you want to put it, you're saying my way is better than God's way. I'm not going to go God's way. Because I much prefer going this way. Just prefer it. I don't give it any thought. I just kind of go that way. And it's out for I think about it. And the reason it's out is because it's there in the first place. And that's what James is saying. If it's not there, it won't come out. And so there is one lawgiver. That lawgiver saves. And listen, that lawgiver destroys. So what's the point? The point is just this. I am not in the place of God. I can't push God off the bench and be in charge and be the one over the law as opposed to under it. Satan tried that and you saw what happened there. The frightening sin of pride. But the point is just this. Remember, that my speaking evil is destructive. There is only one lawgiver who saves and destroys. It's not me. And it's not you. You and I have no right to destroy someone by our words. No right. There is only one lawgiver and it's not us. And just as we will not save by our argument and our personality and our words construct, it is only God that saves. And it's only God that destroys. If we put ourselves as the one who saves or the one who destroys, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. You see how serious this is? And he's bringing this little section to a conclusion and says, if thou judge the law, listen, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you, he says, that judgest another? Now, what a self-check. What a self-check. I mean, could you be as brutal as this? I don't know, could you? Could you be as honest as this? Could you be as self-critical as this? Could you actually open your phone and check that? Your phone against that? Could you do that to yourself? Could you rewind conversations? Could you do it? Could you test it? Could you moderate language? 
help relationships and know the blessing of that. And then he says this, verse 13 to verse 17, just quickly. He's been speaking about harmonious relationships and so on. Now, and he's spoken about humility as being the key to all of these things. Now he will, and it's just like a little caveat here, now he begins to speak about planning as opposed to speaking. And I'll just mention this briefly, and much of this is self-evident from the text in verse 13 down to verse number 17. And he speaks to people who are presumptuous. So he's spoken to the people who have put themselves above the law. Now he speaks to people who are considering themselves to be sovereign in relation to the future and future plans. He says, go to now ye that say today, tomorrow we'll go into such a city, continue there a year and buy and sell. And he's speaking about the presumption of life that is only God's to give. To presume that tomorrow this is going to happen, to presume that tomorrow another thing is going to happen. He says, listen, you've made your plans, but you haven't factored into those plans important details. Now, there's no criticism from James about making plans, far from it. And there's no criticism about making money in business That's not the issue either. The issue is that God's been excluded from these things. Both our plans and our business and commerce and so on. And they profess Christ as Lord, but they exclude them from the planning of their life. And so they therefore remove God's sovereignty in their life and replace it with their own. I'll make the plans just like the rich farmer in the parable in Luke chapter 12. Well, to counter that, he says in verse 14, and some of these verses are well known, whereas you know not what shall be in the morrow, but what is your life? I mean, you don't listen to gospel preaching for long before you hear this quoted and the old keto analogy brought out. What is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So when we take into account God, we need to factor into our plans The fact that life is brief. I was going to burst into song there, like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf be in time. You can't help it. And so life is very brief. He says you don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. These businessmen were presuming upon tomorrow, which we cannot presume upon. I was talking to Jim Patterson today, who many of you know, and he was talking about the treatment that he's undergoing um, and uh, we were having a chat about that and then he said to me, he says, but you know Stephen uh, he said, you're just the same we really can only live one day at a time we don't have the guarantee of any day beyond it and so perhaps it takes circumstances like his at present to focus the mind on that reality but the truth is it's true about all of us and so He's speaking about life is short and uncertain. I'm going to read to you Psalm 90 because Psalm 90 is a whole psalm written about this. And it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as a flood, they're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. 
In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath, according to the fear of you. So, so what? So what? Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So life is like a vapour, but then death is certain. This is like a gospel meeting, but you know the truth of it applies to us as well as those who are listening in a gospel context. Death is certain. Life appears and vanishes. The Lord Jesus spoke about this, particularly in light of disasters. We hear disasters all the time, don't we? Some people reported to him about the Galileans and it was a catastrophe. It wasn't a natural disaster, it was a, it was a slaughter. And the Galileans whom Pilate had slaughtered. The Lord Jesus responded to that and said in Luke 13, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 in whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What he's saying is just this. You see, when you hear something about a natural disaster or when you hear something about an atrocity, you make sure that you have repented of your sins. Lest you go out into eternity and you perish as they have. Take it as a wake-up call to get right with God. And we as, the believers, we as believers, we as the children of God, we ought to have that attitude as well. Living in light of a, of a certain eternity, ready to go ready to meet our Lord. You see, he says this for that ye ought to say. And this is not just a mantra. This is not, you know, DVWP, God willing, weather permitting. You know, we'll do this and that. But this is an attitude of heart. He says, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. So he's saying, this is ought to be our attitude of heart. We're going to make our plans. We're going to be organised. We're going to be diligent. We're also going to make these plans knowing this, that they are subject to the sovereign will of God. He may have different plans, and his plans always trump our plans. Every time. Every time. God is sovereign. Don't be scared of that word. It expresses a biblical truth that permeates the Bible. God is sovereign. And the problem was just this, that they were not taking his sovereign authority into account. And as a consequence, in verse 16, they were boasting and lifted up with pride. So he says, rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil, is evil. And then he finishes it with this. 
He says, therefore, here's the conclusion, therefore. And this is a very pithy thing. Because he says, remember what we've been saying about the whole awkward thing about our language and communication and how uncomfortable that makes us all feel. And immediately we've got texts that are in our mind and immediately we've got people that have just flashed in front of your mind. And that awkwardness is there, and I hope it is there. Well, listen to this. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. He says, if you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it, passively you don't do it, you are actively sinning. You're actively sinning. So being passive, i.e. don't do anything, means that you are actively sinning when you know the right thing to do. So if the right thing to do is to wind back a, a conversation, sort it, or, as they say, cease and desist in a certain line of conversation, and you don't do it. I'm afraid now that you've listened to this message, you're in a position where you can't do that. Because you now will be actively sinning and accountable in a day to come. You see, that is what happens when you read the Bible. It cuts right across, it should, all of us, and make us do something if something requires to be done. Now we trust that all of us, myself included, will think about that seriously and not sin in doing nothing about it. Because sometimes doing nothing about the way we talk about someone who has done something serious is equally as serious as the thing we're talking about. Let's just pray.